makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power, power. Greetings and good day, my relatives. I shake your hands with good feelings in my heart. And it's a good day for all of us to be here. This is First Voices Radio. And I send you greetings and strength from the east gate of Turtle Island, where the sun and the water touch the earth at once. And I'm your host, T. Ocus and Ghost Horse. And you are listening to an all-native hosted, all-native produced First Voices Radio. And Liz Hill is a producer of First Voices Radio. You can hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcast, Buzzsprout, Spotify, as well as firstvoicesindigenousradio.org for archives. Our first guest is Frances Charles, who is a chairwoman of the Lower Elwha Clallam tribe for the last 16 years in Port Angeles, Washington. And she had worked for the Olympic National Forest fire crews and earning her way to a leader in that field. And Chairwoman Charles played a vital role in the recovery of Siwitsin, one of the largest archaeological recoveries in the Northwest. She took a lead role in the negotiation process for the ancient Klalem village on behalf of her people and their ancestors and a leader in restoration efforts of the lower Elwha Klalem cultural values. And she is an active supporter of the annual tribal canoe journey as well as the language program Indian Education in honoring tribal veterans, the youth, and the elders of the tribe. Chairwoman Frances Charles discusses the implications, consequences, and benefits the tribes, quote-unquote, the tribes are leading the way to remove dams and restore ecosystems, which is uh, was a published in the uh, Yes Magazine article July 14, 2021, and in which Charles was featured, we talk about the 100-year effort in time to remove two dams built in 1910 without consultation or nor consent with the Alwa Klalem tribe who live near the Strait of Juan de Fuca in west of Port Angeles, Washington. And the Alwa and Glines Canyon dams along the river were removed in 2011 and 2014, respectfully, 
and they are considered the world's largest dam removal project to date. Together, in the U.S., 2 million dams block access to more than 600,000 miles of river for fish, and by 2030, the American Society of Civil Engineers estimates that 80% of those dams will be beyond their 50-year lifespans. And now we join in conversation with Chairwoman Frances Charles. What Native people are doing, and I like the fact that you know that Indigenous perspective just doesn't mean we're all one. We all have different perspectives. I like that. And it is important to understand for the listeners out there that this interview is about um, being able to restore, regenerate. And our guest, Frances Charles, is a tribal chairwoman for the Lower Elwa Clallam tribe in Northwest Washington. And I'd like to welcome you today, this morning, Frances Charles, for joining us. It's an honor to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. Could you describe, Francis, your background of what your nation does and how long it's been with the Alwa River and that portion of Washington State, which was before Washington State, before America? So I'd like to start from there so people get a background of where you're, where the Klallam people come from. Well, I'm really honored and humbled to be on this interview today. Again, my name is Frances Charles, and I am the tribal, tribal chairwoman of the Lower Elwa Klallam tribe, Miskalam, as well as two other sister tribes that we have uh, close by to us, uh, Jamestown and Port Gamble. We live in the Port Angeles, Washington state area. We're about six miles west of Port Angeles, about two and a half hours uh, drive from the Seattle area uh, west of uh, um, that area. We're right across from the Canadian border, about 16 miles on the water. And also to the fact that our usual custom area for hunting and fishing is from um, Hamahama on the Hood Canal area all the way down towards uh, Macaw territory, which is uh, the um, Hoko River territories as much as we have uh, villages over in the Canadian waters because of our relatives that uh, families that reside just as much over there. So knowing that on the Olympic Peninsula here that uh, we've been here and knowing that we've been here for hundreds of thousands of years and just as well as other nations out there. I've been on tribal council since 1993 to current, um, had held my um, tribal chair position for 20 years and uh, um, continue on with the task for the needs of our tribal community and, and work and relationships that we have with the outside agencies is important. Uh, of course, uh, the challenges that we had with the removal of the Elwa dams um, is something that I am very grateful for, for our ancestrals. Um, also identifying all of the previous council members that had really uh, walked the trail for us and having the opportunity to take in their steps and, and move forward for what they started for the younger generations as we will with our younger generations to follow. And it was a task that was over a hundred years. Um, we were informed many times that uh, this would never happen for our people for the revival of the stories and the history of our people from our elders that had uh, acknowledged to the fact of what needed to happen and the struggles that they had 
in the 1900s of the blockage, trying to stop um, the blockage of the first dams being built uh, by very few of our tribal members at that time. Um, and not being U.S. citizens was also another big challenge that our communities and nations had faced uh, during those eras. And having the land bases within uh, Port Angeles areas as identified within our territories that was taken away from our people and then being relocated uh, across the um, United States and our areas was to be moved to Skokomish territory, which was in those eras our enemies. And that's why we ended up in the Canadian sides with our families uh, that we know of today. In regards to um, the dam projects itself, it, it is something of the task that we had to identify not only within the Port Angeles areas because of the power resources that are provided to Port Angeles and other um, areas just as much. It was a challenge um, right out the get-go uh, in regards to uh, working with the Olympic National Park and some of the other agencies that were involved in it, uh, really having to come to together uh, not only with our dignitaries from Washington, D.C. Um, Norm Dix was one of the main players at that time as a congressman in, in our district, as well as working with the city councils and the port councils and some private um, agencies, uh, Fish and Wildlife and NOAA and um, Army Corps and, and array of uh, different agencies to come to an understanding and really having to educate one another, really having to um, come to the table and and agree to disagree and being able to listen to the history of our elders and realizing not only the significant loss of the resources of our salmon and um, seeing the lack of the traditional smokehouses that had depleted because of the lack of the fish but also um, we started losing our culture. We, we started uh, uh, remembering the, the stories that our elders had really told us when we were young, in our younger days as we grew up about the creation sites, about the sacred uh, ceremonies that was provided earlier on with our ancestors that they were prohibited not only for their culture, the songs and their tradition, but also their language. So these are some of the things that we were able to revive. And these are some of the species and, and whatnot that uh, we started seeing in abundance again um, on our, the fish runs. And it's an opportunity that uh, not only for the betterment of our community, but it was an opportunity for everybody. It, don't, it did not only satisfy the need for Elwa, it satisfied the need for all nations out there. But we couldn't have done it without the support. We couldn't have done it without the tribes that stood with us from all areas, international and foreign uh, areas just as much uh, that we really had to come together. But it was education, education, education. And what I'm thinking is it started in January 1986, that motion to stop the relicensing of the dams because that had to go through a process. But you and, and your elders saw something that could exercise that treaty right. And could you tell us about that? If you're going to license, give license to renew, 
then you're going to have to provide, I think, a fish passage, and that would not work. So I think that was another um, a great idea to, to really put in with the fact that it was preventing you from exercising your treaty rights. So one, one of the things that uh, we looked at in the lease agreement was the relicensing aspects that uh, the Bonneville and the agencies had to go through. So it was a task of um, the staff and the lawyers getting together to challenge that format of it and recognizing the impacts of the cost factors that it had with the design and perception that was designed in the earlier years to have a fish passage, which did not occur when they were um, building the, the lower dam. And the cost factors and the design and uh, perceptions that they had moved forward with when when that came about uh, wasn't something that was feasible um, th that uh, the agencies had felt uh, at that point in time. So we had challenged uh, the, the relicensing. Um, we had challenged the departments and we had educated them on what the need and the uh, resources were needed for the salmon. And uh, we also challenged to the fact of what the needs were for our people. But uh, um, really it was, it come down to the cost factors of educating the agencies that were involved in the, the whole process itself. And a committee was formed to evaluate um, the pros and the cons of the relicensing and the, the abilities of what other opportunities um, that were out there that uh, could be looked at. So there was a different array of individuals that was selected uh, onto this committee to review um, the, the processes of continuing on or the processes of removal. And it was studied to death. I mean, it was studied by all avenues of um, environmentalists, uh, science, and in uh, overall just the, the process of um, the removal of it itself for the cost. So Francis Charles, when I'm thinking about the idea of put forward the power of these treaties and actually the, the federal case that started way back with the Bolt decision had a lot to do with that. Did you know that th there were some ideas back then that this would be happening? Because it seems like with the unveiling of this information, some listeners will not believe that there are two million dams built within the United States. And, and that's part of just one dam. One dam can restore a whole ecosystem. Two million. Can you imagine that to take down just one and how long would it take in the whole process of taking down just one dam? So I'm wondering, um, Francis Charles, you you mentioned partnering partnering with other groups to make sense of, of why dams need to come down, especially with the climate the way it is now, you think that would help the whole idea of what climate change is? And because we seem to be suffering more of a climate crash and crisis right now. And just by that example of, of your people coming to a place that's showing that people can indeed wake up if we just come together. So one of the avenues that we talked with our people about um, is the loss of our treaty rights. And that was a challenge, of course, when the bolt decisions come out and, and the 
disgruntled uh, for the non-natives, but also disgruntled for the tribal people in general for what the lack of um, respect was for our rivers and for the salmon and for the creation of what Mother Earth herself had provided us. And we had seen the struggles of what our river um, was going through with the lack of the medicines that it needed for itself to heal in many ways. But having the stories from our elders when they were growing up and witnessing how plenty the salmon were uh, going up our river um, beds there to where I recall a few of our elder ladies that had talked about how when they had seen and witnessed the runs coming up that they would have been able to walk on the back of the, the salmon to the other bank of the river and seeing it flourish through the years of generations and, and those eras, um, the depletions that had taken place was sad. I mean, it was our medicine, it was our food. We have stories of how our elders would go into the river at night to um, fish illegally because again, we weren't um, considered uh, uh, citizens, but also our families had to be fed no different uh, than we are today through that processes of it. But also to the factor of the struggles that we went through on making and having the uh, outsiders understand the importance of the salmon, but also understanding the importance of restoration itself. Applying for some of the different resources to uh, align the, um, the smaller creeks and the rivers and um, basins parts of it to do the restoration habitat aspects of it for the preparation um, we knew that if we prepared the, the side uh, channel rivers, um, we, we knew that we prepared uh, for the transportations of working with the Olympic National Park to transport some of these fingerlings, utilizing the hatcheries um, for um, enhancing some of the fish runs to come back into the Elwha. It was an opportunity that we looked at in, in many different categories and many different ways to partner through that process, but really studying the rivers itself and looking at our territories on how um, we could make it work for us, but also identifying to the fact of how it would work for other nations out there. Understanding the importance of it, but really it come down to the cost factor of the challenges that we were faced with, knowing that uh, the, the time frame that it had taken had really uh, raised up the cost of what the original plan was at that point in time, but it it had taken the bearing of many of our elders, many of who weren't here, many that had passed on, but they, they're the ones that really set this path for us. Uh, I recall the stories of how our people used to run door to door for uh, funding sources so that they could make it back to Washington, D.C. to tell our story. Uh, listening to the congressional, but also listening to the previous uh, um, Washington, D.C. individuals of how they had listened to our women who went back to testify, who was B. Charles Adeline Smith, and at that time, Carla Elson was the chairwoman, and having the opportunities to tell the story of the impacts that it had on us as a small tribe 
At that time, we had a little over 300 enrolled members. Now we're at about 1,000 enrolled members. But the impacts that it has on our future generations yet today for the climate changes that we're seeing, uh, um, I have the opportunity of driving across the river every day from my home. And just uh, through the changes of the seasons, I see a big change, a positive change. And also when our natural resources are out there doing the study and doing the data recovery, we, we have the opportunity of seeing some of those fish runs come back and watching uh, what Mother Nature does itself on um, bringing back some of these resources, not only the salmon, but uh, many eagles and um, a lot of the wildlife that is coming back to the territory just as much, but really focusing on the runs um, has been very challenging. Pink salmon still have a challenge of the lower dam because we took out two dams. Um, on the lower dam itself, uh, the pink salmon cannot go above the first dam because they're not jumping fish. So there's still barriers there that we're challenged with on working with the agencies and working with Washington, D.C. on trying to get some additional funds uh, uh, to finish that project for different species. And, and we've seen some of the species return in, a few sockeye that had come in um, and some of the trout that has returned, but also seeing many of the kings and coho uh, come in more of an abundance, but not what we had seen in the earlier years just as much. So this is a long process, a hundred year process. As you know, Francis, in 1978, Native people were given the freedom of religion. But I, I take it one step further. You described something perfectly to me about the restoration, regeneration. But I also think about the, the language that was taken away, that now you can speak again, and that language will maintain what this restoration process is all about and that struggle of still trying to restore what the damage has done for over a hundred years, but also if we have freedom of religion, now you're describing to me a freedom of the land is because you as the Clallam people are there to keep and maintain that freedom for the earth. And one of, one of the opportunities that I have to say that we've been, we've been successful in many things um, looking back at them. And I guess it really gets back to the fact that, we natives don't vote a lot about the things that we've been successful in, in in that manner because that was our upbringing. Not to not to brag about things, but we have to remember there's times like today that we do need to do that. And losing the language that we had lost in the earlier days, um, being fortunate enough to be able to bring the culture and to bring the language back for our people and the younger generations. We were one of the first tribes of Washington State to be able to teach our language as a foreign language in the public schools because we don't have a, a tribal school on our reservation because we're a checkerboard reservation a fee to trust reservation status. But having that opportunity now and, and having meetings with the local school districts to be able to strive on bringing that, the language programs back and to uh, outreach to the educational processes of who we are and what we're all about. Um, being a small and, and strong people is a clallum, is meaning of the strong people. 
and having the ability not only with canoe journeys but bringing back the culture for our young ones when we have canoe journeys and and we have other canoes that come in from international uh, areas as well as washington state areas or wherever it may be it's our children that get up there in front of the um, visitors and welcome them to come into our cloud of territories to welcome them in our own language to welcome them and to come come and feast with us and sing and dance and, and um, tell stories so these are something that we really strive on because it makes us proud and looking at our elders and seeing the gleam and the glitter in their eye because it's their grandchildren or their great great grandchildren that are up there talking the tongues and in their language that they were forced not to they were they were threatened in many ways in their their ages and in their time of that process but also talking about the creation sites of where a young man would go to up on the river itself and and come back with who he was to be when he was uh, considered an adult and a young warrior whether he was the hunter of the community or he was a medicine uh, man of the, the community or uh, he provided other in other means on, on fishing and, and uh, whatnot. So these are some of the sacred sites that our people have talked about and actually walking to it and hiking into that area of where our elders have talked about the story when that first app come down and actually having a visual and being able to share that with our elder by via uh, telephone and uh, the, the cell aspects to our elders that used to tell us the stories when we were growing up, that it was not a myth, it was reality. And those are some of the things that have really strived within our people and that we're very proud of is because those things are coming so true of what was considered a myth by many and having the archaeologists up there with us to, to share and to witness what we had witnessed that day is, is something that we will never forget. Having our elders and Billy Frank uh, Jr. and so many of the dignitaries standing at the lower dam, watching that first pile and that first brick get busted up to where we started the removal. I mean, those are things that we we cannot express by the feelings, but just in the motions that we seen with our own people and our elders that were still there, that was with us to walk that path with us and, and having the prayers and, and seeing the eagles swarm above us from in the sky when that had happened. It, it, it's something that we will never forget. Uh, many of us that were able to witness it and having the little, the little ones up there singing and dancing um, when that had taken place and, and feeling the array of the emotions of actually seeing the first dam and the beginning process of removal. It is something that we're gratified for. We thank the creator for it. We thank all of those that stood behind us because we were told many times that this would never happen. And it took a hundred years. So I, I tell and say to many other nations out there that are in this process, no different than we were, never give up. Yeah. Always pray, always have that hope because it will come about when the time is right. And it was a hundred years that it had taken us 
but that time was right and it came together. So good to hear you, Francis Charles, and honor Francis Charles, the tribal chairwoman for the Lower Elwa Clallam tribe. But thank you for joining us. Thank you, Ottenson. Thank you very much. listening to First Voices Radio, and I'm your host, T. Okison, Ghost Horse. And as people across the world start to re-emerge and emerge from the 2021 pandemic, 
Fitzfontaine's Indian City Band shares a positive, lighthearted message with a new single titled Smile. You just heard that, and it will be included on Indian City's new album, Code Red, which is scheduled for release in October 2021. And Vince Fontaine has deep roots with his Ojibwa heritage and the community of Saging First Nation in Manitoba. And for more than 25 years, Vince has been at the forefront of indigenous music making, music making in Canada. And Vince is a guitarist, songwriter, music builder, and producer, festival curator, organizer, and artistic director, film director, and entertainment business owner. He's also one of Canada's most highly celebrated Indigenous composers. And he is one of also the founder and lead guitarist of the award-winning Roots rock band, Eagle and Hawk. Information can be found at Rising Sun Productions.ca and EagleandHawk.com, as well as Indian City dot ca and of course on facebook instagram and twitter and vince is also a respected voice on indigenous issues and we discuss the july 1st toppling of the queens of victoria and elizabeth ii statues in winnipeg and the discussions taking place that have accelerated across turtle island and that includes the united states and mexico and south america and since the may discovery of 215 indigenous children's remains near Kamloops Residential School in British Columbia and subsequent findings of hundreds of other unmarked children's caves at more residential schools, boarding schools in the U.S., but only in Canada. So far, there's been more than 2,500 and only 12 to 13, I believe it is, grave sites. And you have at least 120 more grave sites at those boarding schools and residential schools to uncover and reveal. So we discuss um, what the current status is of Native people. This includes everybody who's listening. A lot of people think, what does this have to do with this local area? Well, Native people are, we are the local area. This is who we are. We don't split ourselves up with borders. And so we talk a little bit with Vincent Fontaine. And thank you for joining us here on First Voices Radio. I'd like to welcome you to First Voices Radio, Vince Fontaine, and thank you for your thoughts on the boarding school, you being the first generation not to be in boarding school, if I'm correct, but actually understanding and going through what you understood the behavior of your parents and the generations before that were in boarding school. And what I want to know for the people out here, here in North America, not just Canada, in Canada, but there's something going on, a social change with the unveiling, uh, revealing of all of the the children that are now coming home from all the, the graves in Canada at this point. And as you know, we all know there are more graves down in the lower states here. 364 um, boarding schools and 139, I think, in Canada. But it's only the tip of the iceberg if that's where we're at. But one thing is to be sure that I, I did read about you uh, in the Winnipeg Free Press about there is there are natural things to do and things that we do as Native people. And one of them out of a reaction was replacing uh, what I thought was, yes, taking down the, the Queen Victoria statues and those so-called conquerors and replacing them with our own, which to me repeated a um, the behavior of the colonized and I think that what, what I'm reading from you is that we have to really look at what we're doing uh, 
and 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 consider everybody who is concerned those who um actually are making new music like you are and coming up with ideas that maintain who we are as native people um but other than that vince um i'd like to welcome you to first voices and your thoughts on what i just said jamie glitch thank you so much uh for your introduction and uh it's a pleasure to be here i'm in winnipeg manitoba right now that's uh for folks who don't uh, know the geography right off the top of their head that's kind of in the center above north dakota and uh, minnesota we're only about uh, an hour from the border uh, of course with covid the border has been closed for over a year um is the audio still good you can still hear me yes it's still good i'm oh. just i'm just turning mine down to make a good a better yeah. recording good yes uh, to continue uh, thank you again as i mentioned um yeah there's a lot of things happening um you know sure in Canada right now, but I kind of look back at uh, my uh, part of history uh, as, a, as a small voice through music in the last 25 plus years. Uh, you know, musically, we try and be a voice and uh, especially um, specifically with Indigenous issues uh, that are important to us. And um, I'm no different than artists that came before me, whether it's uh, people I, I've known um, John Trudell, Kisakola, Bill Miller, Floyd Westerman, uh, Redbone, the list goes on and on. Uh, so I've witnessed, uh, I call them waves of um, moments that Indigenous people have moved the needle and changed the narrative and discussion in the last few decades. My um, real point of entering into this uh, more formally was probably started in 1990 with in Canada, we had the Oka crisis. And that really took me uh, and really touched my soul. And it was after that that I just kind of started with the Eagle and Hawk band in the mid-90s. And, uh, you know, Eagle and Hawk went on to record a few albums and just, just be part of the scene, which I really enjoyed. And I, as a guitar player and songwriter and band leader, um, I was fortunate to do a lot of nice uh, gigs and hear the voice of other artists, you know, uh, from, like I said, Kisakola, and we played places uh, like the Atlanta 96 Olympics that was hosted by the Seminole Tribe of Florida, Discover Native America Village we had. Um, so people wanted to share their voice. And, um, you know, jumping ahead to what you said, right here in Winnipeg right now, there is a movement, a movement of un unearthing and uncovering things that were kind of hidden. It's a dark, a dark past. Uh, the boarding schools are Indian residential schools, as they're called in Canada. And um, they were implemented and um, put in place by the government of Canada. The, uh, the experience um, was put in place and uh, it was given, the reins were given to many of the churches in Canada, <clears throat> uh, the Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, uh, many other denominations that were, were part of that. They were given the rain, but they were given the mandate. And the one that comes to mind often and often is uh, uh, there's a phrase that was uh, goes down in history is kill the Indian in the child. Uh, they wanted to de-Indianize uh, those little children and uh, make them into white children for the sake of Canada, as I recall. And this is the way I look at history. And... Um, Many people from the reservations, the reserves in Canada, were actually taken um, away. Um, can you imagine as a parent, and of course we can, 
if your children were taken and taken to a school, how horrific would that be as a parent and for the children? So it's a very painful history that we're experiencing now, especially when we have heard most recently, and the first one that came to the news, came to light, was the discovery of 250 graves, of unmarked graves of children that were in the Kelowna Indian Residential School. And we would learn that um, several more would follow in the weeks after. And um, my um, reaction was such emotion. Um, and I tried my best to be part of that voice and conversation. Um, four years ago, my other music group, Indian City, and then there's Eagle and Hawk, as I mentioned, but Indian City released an album <clears throat> called Here and Now in 2017, which was the 150th anniversary of Canadian, uh, the Canadian uh, Canada becoming a nation. It wasn't a great 150 years for Indigenous people. That's that's a fact. That's my personal experience as well. And so I wrote songs on that album about that experience, Indian Residential School, the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls was another theme. Um, you know, the fire won't die, seventh generation and beyond and beyond, the tree of life. So there was some really nice themes, but one song in particular that was very hard to write, but uh, it's a strong and powerful song is called Take Me Home. And the lyrics were written imagining being a child, the perspective of a child behind the schoolyard, the playground, and they can't go home, but they want to. So that song was actually released four years ago, but when they discovered the 215, we put together a bit of an image video in honor of the 215, and that would be listed on the YouTube channel, Indian City 215. Uh, folks want to check it out. It's uh, very emotional. Um, I get choked up. Seriously, when I listen to the song, it still chokes me up. Uh, but at the same time, we have to share these things. Um, so that's kind of leading us into that discussion and question you had about, um, for me personally, <clears throat> I, you know, one of the Indian residential schools was on my on my reserve. Um, it's called Sagin First Nation, which is north of Winnipeg, about an hour. At the time, um, you know, Last, last year, 50, 60 years beyond, uh, it was more referred to as Fort Alexander. In fact, that that's what the residential school is called, Fort Alexander. And, um, and so I have cousins and relatives that went to that school. Um, in fact, my siblings, my, um, my brother and my oldest sister were uh, residential school um, people, children. Um, and they they survived. But the effect of the residential school, from my point of view, even though I wasn't uh, in residential school, I would I would not understand that initially growing up as a child. Um, you know, you didn't understand things of um, discipline, <clears throat> whatever that was or the definition or, you know, when people had pain underneath and why they react in certain ways or uh, anger or shame. Uh, this was all part of that residential school experience. I certainly had shame as a young person and an adolescent growing up in mainstream Canada. You were uh, not uh, proud of being an Indian. <clears throat> in fact, <clears throat> pardon me, in fact, in Canada, you would often try and 
say you were uh, maybe a more, um, you know, less Indian and maybe more half half blood or half breed or Métis, because uh, there was less prejudice and you wouldn't you wouldn't experience maybe the racism is is so deep. So, uh, but I do know that years later, my oldest brother and oldest sister they experienced trauma, and uh, that affected their life, their lives right to their uh, to the days today. Unfortunately, my oldest sister passed away. Um, I know as a fact, the residential school experience was really a part of her, um, you know, shouldering the burden of pain and shame. And I'll put it like that because it was not an easy experience for them. And same as my mother. Uh, my father uh, was a World War II veteran. He didn't go to residential school. In fact, he probably skipped school and went uh, as a young person probably to work. And then when he was younger, 16, 17, enlisted in the army and they shipped him off to Europe. He was one of the uh, brave men that uh, went, brave men and women that landed on the beaches of Normandy in June of 1944. And, um, you know, that's another, that is a proud moment of our history. And I always like to acknowledge that of my father who, ended up um, living most of his life in the United States, was an American citizen, and he was a World War II veteran and a prisoner of war for nine months. Um, so, yeah, that's I'll leave it with that, and then we can discuss further and deeper on the impact or the residential school uh, and what's happening today and tomorrow. Thank you for that, James Fontaine. You talk about the resilience and, and how it's not just a symbol or symbolic, but the fact that you described several stories of your relations living through a time most younger people, younger than you, don't understand that or don't hear. But what happens to these young people when they hear that, their reactions, or is it out of anger that they're taking statues down? Or is it something that, that they've learned from a colonial standpoint? is to remove anything in of that oppressor as what has happened to us. Are we mimicking their their behavior? Well, I mean, let's be honest here. I'll put on my uh, university sociology undergraduate hat here. <laughs> From a sociological point of view, I know we look at, uh, you know, social change and we, we look at points of reference for that. So, and we all watch the media so perhaps that's a part, as you were saying, um, it's a part of society and social change is throughout history. People protest and, and try and create their voice for change in many different ways. My um, thing I suggest was that act uh, of pulling down the statues. You know, there was a lot of that in the last couple of years we've seen in the United States with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, you know, in the South, um, a lot of the history, historical figures statues have become to symbolize a certain oppression that people don't want to uh, sit, you know, they want to have on a podium anymore. They don't want to be visually reminded every day. On the other hand, there's some people that would say, well, let's leave it up, but maybe we need to kind of amend it and have a little plaque underneath to say that this person was, um, so maybe uh, that this is how we think things should change. Uh, because obviously, but also the young people, Let's let's just suggest that it was the young people that um, initiated the pulling down of the statues. Well, what I want to say is we know that young people are rising up in a sense with their voice. And I think they're really tired and hurt 
deeply on what has happened to their uh, the generations before them, and they don't want to have that repeat. And then I think they feel it's been unfair. And uh, people want to they want to move that needle so it's more fair. <clears throat> um, you know, it's it's not like they were acting violently and having destruction and everything. You know, I'm, I'm not really for any destruction of any properties and that, but I know when people are pushed back in the corner, they'll push back um, because, you know, there's only so much we can take and we feel that we're defending ourselves, we're defending our future and sovereignty. I think sovereignty is should be the discussion of the day. And what does that mean? What does that mean in Canada? What does it mean in the United States? Uh, you know, sovereignty comes in many forms, of course. I, I just recently came from um, Las Vegas. I was there for, there was a couple of conferences with um, Native American folks in business. And uh, it's nice to see that people are pushing ahead in so many different ways. Um, what I like to see more and more is the fact that uh, we're going to recognize and honor these uh, movements that are happening, <clears throat> whether it's for the missing and murdered Indigenous women, whether it's for um, the children of residential and boarding schools, uh, whether we honor great accomplishments from the past, like a moving, you know, honor roll, uh, you know, like, in, you know, in societies, we they all have that. They have their honoring ceremonies in, in a big way, like the Kennedy Center for the Arts has their big concerts. And we should have things like that in Native American country and in Canada. So... Mm. No, that that's a good idea to to end with is um, that I, the quote is, but I think indigenous people are poised and they're not going to step back. Can you give us the ideas behind that? Um, well, you know, some of the agents of social change, you know, is education. And so we're getting educated in, in what is and what was and what should be. Um, so we know there's um, a generation that just was you know on the move here and they want to change things they're participating in every aspect of society um i would imagine we can look at the african-american uh, black experience in the united states from just a mere 50 years ago and how things have changed uh for their position there's uh, so you know so many more people in public life in, in uh, positions of uh of you know authority or power lawmakers i should say or different things like that and uh, maybe all of that has to move all we, all at the same time uh there's a place for um grand marches i think you know whether they're uh, marches on uh, capital uh, the capital or they're marches on downtown winnipeg um these are moments that we come together as a community and the people and uh the world or the media takes note and they report that and um this is, I think, part of social change. There's a lot of things to do. And uh, I think um, I think young people, they know they know the truth and they know where it should go and, and they know where they want it to go. And that's in a more clear and uh, a proper proper place in history. Well, Vince Fontaine, thank you. It's an honor to have you here. And but I want to thank you. And maybe we could you could suggest a song for me. A song I'll suggest if you have it in your track, there is um, A Fire Won't Die. Yes, I like that one. Yeah, that's a great song. And uh, I think that's appropriate to, uh, you know, as long as the rivers run, the fires won't die. Yeah. So that's really the, the line of the song. 
That's so cool. So good, good, good to talk to you. We'll probably talk again in the future. All right, Vince. Thank you so much.
lover, don't you come down without a sword or a gun. For the gold and the silver you're searching is hidden out there on the ground. But there's a beast on the cloak guarding against the foe. From the river is watching, she won't let you get any close. He was just an American dream. He was just an American dream. Hey, hey. He was just an American. Sound. Bring your rifle around. When I say hallelujah, it's your cue to shoot at the head of the hound. Now take this fortune in baby. Any more won't fit your bed. What's first is your feet they will curry. For they great to chase us Dead. There's no heaven. 